The American people are longing for leaders to fill the role of statesmen and stateswomen. Sadly, leaders willing to put people and principles before party and politics are vanishing from view on the national stage. Former United States Senator Joe Lieberman, a true statesman, shares his insight on political courage, bipartisan collaboration, faith in the public square, and lessons from a lifetime of public service on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? Well, it is a great honor today to be joined on Therefore What by former United States Senator Joe Lieberman. Senator, thanks for being with us today. Uh, Boyd, it's a pleasure. Thank, uh, thank you, and I, uh, I appreciate your work, and uh, uh, more immediately, your kind words about me. So <laughs> glad, glad to be here for the conversation. Well, you know, we live in this uh, very interesting time. I, I really do believe that the American people want to be led. Uh, they, they want to be led somewhere that matters, and it seems that more and more uh, our politicians Politics are driving things, and the political divisive rhetoric is driving everything. What does it look like from from your perch? No, I think that's true. I mean, the the uh, the government. I I was privileged to be in the United States Senate for 24 years. Um, the last two of those, which were 2011 and 12, were the least productive of the 24. Uh, for me personally, and also for the Congress, and it it was because it probably in every one of those years, with, with exceptions, uh, partisanship seemed to become more deeply ingrained, ideological rigidity, and basically the unwillingness to come to the center from left and right to negotiate, compromise. Why to get something done to solve problems for our constituents and our country, hopefully to see some opportunities that need the government to seize those opportunities and the public. Uh, uh, very frustrated by this, e- even though the polls seem to show that the people's uh, loyalty to the parties is is quite um, uh, deep and strong, and, and actually the parties themselves are becoming more a reason for divisiveness. Still, if you ask people, do you want your representatives in Washington to uh, be uncompromising in support of their uh, principles, or do you want them to work with the other party uh, to get something done? And always the second choice wins out. So you're, you're absolutely right. The public knows it needs a government that's producing and solving problems, and they need leadership. And I think that's part of the reason why they, they voted, a lot of them, with some uh, uneasiness for Donald Trump in 2016, because he represented at least a change, a difference, yeah. and came in with the record of a, of a, a, a business executive. So they hoped it would be different. And, of course, part of what's on the line now, and as we head to 2020, uh, assuming the president runs again, which I do, is that um, whether they feel he's fulfilled that hope. Fascinating. I, I, I'm one of those who uh, believes that we are far less divided than I think sometimes we <laughs> we buy into. There's a lot of fake fights and false choices. And right. uh, I've always said you could probably solve 94.5% of immigration in an afternoon on the floor of the Senate and the House because everyone agrees. Part of your work uh, has been uh, with a group called No Labels. Uh, you were uh, co-chairs there with uh, now Ambassador John Huntsman, uh, ties right. here to Utah. And to me, as I, as I watch the two 
of you work through that. To me, it was not. It was never about this squishy kumbaya group hug kind of thing, but more. <laughs> let's create a space where we can have big ideas, bold, you know, challenging conversations and debate, and then let the ideas win uh, on their own merits. Well, you are you are absolutely right. No labels was never about kind of just moderation, uh, that everybody on left and right has to suddenly become a moderate. It really was about a centrism, and by that I mean a willingness to come from left and right to the center uh, to negotiate, to mm-hmm. compromise, to solve problems. And I, I could not have had a better co-chair partner in that than, than John Huntsman, your former governor in Utah. Just, first of all, just an extraordinarily honorable person. And, you know, in politics is a lot of headlines and back and forth and all. But honestly, the ability to get something done depends on your trust and the people you're uh, working with, because somebody told me when I started my career in politics a long time ago in Connecticut, in politics there are no contracts. You don't write down a contract and have a, a notary seal it. Mm. It's a handshake. It's a it's a promise, and your word is what matters. And you know, John Huntsman and I, I just trusted him totally. So we worked together in different campaigns, including John McCain's, and then um, we worked together on no labels. And you, you got it exactly right. Uh, the whole idea was to to bring people to the center to solve problems. And and we've had great examples of that back in the 80s with President Reagan and Tip O'Neill, one a liberal, one a conservative. Uh, they worked together to solve a lot of problems, notably Social Security. Even in the 90s, not so long ago, President Clinton, uh, center-left Democrat, uh, Newt Gingrich, probably right Republican, uh, really an unlikely couple. And uh, But they worked together and uh, got a lot done, welfare reform, criminal justice reform, and then the big achievement, uh, a balanced budget act. Act, which actually balanced the budget and, and uh, produced a surplus in our government for a couple of years. So it can be done, and that's what No Labels uh, has tried to do, first by just ideas that are supported by a majority of people that we try to interest the Republicans and Democrats in. And then the last couple of years, we decided that a lot of the problem in government today is political and has a lot to do with campaign money, and it was only going to be solved and made better if we got in there, raised some money, and supported uh, um, what we would describe as center-right Republicans and center-left Democrats uh, against, particularly in primaries, against further-right Republicans and further-left Democrats, because they seem to be the ones who are least willing to come to the center and negotiate. And, and last year, uh, just to finish this, we uh, we got involved in 28 races. And we won 23 of them, equally divided between Republicans and Democrats. So I think we're going to be back in the 2020 congressional elections, even uh, bigger than last time. Oh, that's that's fantastic. I want to go back. You, you mentioned this uh, idea of, of no contracts, that it is all built on trust. We've been right. ta- We've been talking a lot lately that one of the inhibitors to that kind of trust is this instant certainty uh, that with the Internet and, and national media in particular, that, you know, we have to have this snap judgment. This immediate reaction or response that is definitive uh, on any of the issues we've we've seen it play out on a on a host of different cases that you know what people initially thought was not quite 
accurate or right <laughs> or, or completely right. wrong altogether. Uh, and so I want to I want to ask you just a little more on that in terms of that that trust factor that you were able to develop again across the aisle with people like John McCain and uh, President right. Bush and so on. Um, what what do you see as the key to building that kind of trust and those kinds of relationships in today's Washington? Yeah. Well, first, Boyd, you just pointed to a really important problem that doesn't get much attention, which is that we're in uh, an age of uh, such rapid communication and rapid uh, attack and counterattack in uh, politics that uh, people often feel compelled to do something that we didn't always feel compelled to do during my years in the Senate, which is to give an instantaneous response or to counterattack immediately for fear that the attack will um, will gain um, uh, certainty, stability in the minds of people following it, particularly on social media. I mean, sometimes it was reasonable to say, you know, I haven't thought about that enough to respond to that yet. Just give, give me a couple of days. Right. And... Um, I can tell you that I used John McCain, my dear friend. And here, here's a story for you. Uh, after he ran for uh, the Republican nomination for president in 2000 and lost, he came back to the Senate. And he came over to me one day. It was probably 2001. And he said to me, you know, and we were already friends. We cooperated on a lot of foreign policy. But he said to me, and defense. But he said to me, uh, you know, during the 2000 campaign, he had been asked, a lot about climate change, global warming. And he said, I gave a sort of quick answer. And really, I, I didn't, I don't think I understood the, the subject well enough. And he said to, to me, you've been out there, which I had been on it. I'd already proposed some legislation. Can, can we work together? And I said, oh, John, I'd love to. So the first thing we did was to sit down with our staffs, with experts, and we just sort of got educated. And John particularly wanted to learn. And uh, then we, then we, uh, put in a bill for three straight sessions. We didn't, unfortunately, pass it, but we did get past 50 votes. We just couldn't get to 60 to break a filibuster. So, I mean, that sounds like, you know, out of another world from today, but there we were, Republican, Democrat, uh, seeing that there was a problem, climate change, and taking the time to uh, to figure out what would be a, an appropriate compromise uh, solution to it, uh, and uh, really, we got to get back there somehow Yeah. Uh, to, to being willing to to take the time to think and negotiate. If you just respond, you're probably just going to kind of attack. That's right, and, and that leads nowhere good. Yeah, the uh, a little instant uncertainty would probably help all of us uh, be a little, <laughs> a little more open to to, to, to learning. <laughs> Good way to put it. Uh, I, I want to ask you, I, I, I've often said that uh, the last thing someone should ask themselves before pulling the lever to cast a vote for someone uh, is to ask yourself, what would this person do if they lost? How would they continue yeah. to make a difference? Uh, because if, yeah. you, if you can't answer that, then this is not someone who can show real courage uh, in office because they'll always, it'll always be about holding on. You, you had a, a period uh, during the Clinton administration uh, where you really had to to show some political courage as it related to President Clinton and, and his right. behavior. Uh, describe that for us a little bit and, and kind of your thinking. What, what was going on in your head as you were watching that play out and when you ultimately took right. a very bold stand? Sure. Well, I mean, your standard is a good one, uh, incidentally, and uh, probably very few people do that. What will this person do if they lose the election? Uh, and that, that's an important question. So, you know, when, when the facts of the Clinton-Lewinsky 
scandal broke, I mean, I was just honestly heartbroken because I'd been an early... I knew Bill Clinton since he was at Yale Law School, and I had just graduated and was beginning to practice law in New Haven. He actually helped me in my first campaign in the primary for state senator in New Haven. I was all of 27 years old, and uh, we won. So uh, I helped him in 92. I thought he was a really effective president. When this came out, I was just horrified, and... uh, but, you know, I, I was home. It was summertime, and uh, it was bothering me a lot. And then I'd go out. And actually, my family and I took a vacation on the Connecticut shore for a while. And I'd just walk along the beach or at the supermarket or the movie theater. And people kept coming up to me. You have to speak out about this. You know, you've been uh, criticizing the entertainment industry for um, messages about sex and violence that go to kids. And how can you stand by and let this happen? And honestly, it got it got to me. And uh, it was one of the harder decisions I'd ever made to get up and make the speech I made uh, condemning uh, President Clinton's behavior and, and appealing to him to uh, acknowledge more responsibility than than he had and, and basically his guilt. But I but I knew in the end I had to do it. And and. And, uh, you know, come what may, I had no idea what the impact would be. But you come to certain points where you say, well, why am I here? Why, why have I been blessed or privileged to end up as a U.S. senator and not to sort of stick a uh, cloth in my mouth when I feel really in that case, and I don't want to overuse this word, a moral responsibility. I mean, I grew up in a religious tradition, uh, really, where, uh, well, it goes right to the Bible, where, you know, the higher you go, the more accountable you are for your actions, because the greater the consequences if you misbehave. I mean, the ultimate of that is Moses, who didn't, uh, wasn't allowed to enter the promised land because essentially he lost his temper and therefore faith in God on one occasion. You could cite many others, King Saul losing the kingship because he didn't follow what the prophet Samuel told him God wanted him to do in a particular circumstance. So anyway, I did it with trepidation. Turned out to ultimately have had a positive effect. I mean, to to Bill Clinton, the remarkable person that he is, about a a week after I... I, um, made this speech. He was he had been abroad. He came back. He called me at my house on a Sunday morning and um, essentially said, I agree with everything you said in that speech. I feel terrible about what I did. And uh, I'm working with two ministers counseling just to get my way back out of this and really to seek forgiveness. And, and he actually held a meeting, with, as you may remember, with yeah. a, quite an interdenominational group of, of clergy people. To, to basically ask forgiveness, so it was quite a remarkable time in my life. And I, but I, I knew I never forget the night before I made this speech. My wife said, "Why do you have to do it?" <laughs> and I said, "You know, I've just decided I do have to do it, both personally and what people expect of me." And uh, <laughs> so uh, it turned out okay. But uh, it was—I had to look at that. You're absolutely right. Maybe this is going to be the end of my public service. But okay, if it is, uh, I did what I thought was right, and I think that's important. Uh, on the on the subject of faith, uh, I want to share with you a a quote that I heard uh, in a speech last year um, at the the Beckett Fund. Uh, they were honoring uh, Rabbi Mir Soloviechik, and uh, in his yes. in his speech, uh, which was just 
brilliant. Um, he said this. I want you to respond to this. Uh, he was talking about the Hanukkah lights, and he said right. he said that uh, it used to be that Hanukkah lights were kindled not inside but outside the door of Jewish homes. Uh, mm. And the verse in Proverbs allows us to understand the lesson of the ritual. The soul of man is the candle of God. Lighting candles outside the doors of our homes expresses that when people of faith leave their homes and enter the world, they take their beliefs and their religious identity with them. They don't check their belief at the door when they enter the public square. Their souls, the candle within each person, illuminates their path wherever they may lead. And so I wanted to ask you, Senator, what is the role of faith in the public square? It seems to be getting pushed further and further out of the public square. Uh, Is there a way for us in today's world to have faith as a dimension of diversity? Uh, Can we still bring it into the public square? Well, thanks for that question, Boyd. First of all, I'm a great admirer of uh, Rabbi Marisol Vajic, and those are beautiful words, which I... I couldn't agree with more. And, uh, you know, just personally, I'll say very quickly, I was raised with the idea that, that uh, yes, it's important that some people are study, studying the Bible and Talmud, et cetera, in uh, universities or in seminaries. But really the test of our religion is, are we taking it out uh, into our lives? Um, and um, that, because that's that, that was God. God's purpose in giving us the law, giving us faith, giving us our beliefs, um, whatever they are. And um, so I, I, I believe that uh, very, very strongly. And I, I do think, and here I go back to uh, the founding generation of our country, you know, quite religious in their way, pretty much all Christian Protestants, um, but um, and all deists, certainly believers in God, that, that's that's clear in all the founding documents, Declaration of Independence, Constitution. But th- but really what I go to is uh, George Washington. I believe it was in the farewell address, pretty sure, where he says, um, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, D- don't indulge the supposition that, that you can, that we can have a, uh, a, a good society or a just society here in uh, America without the influence of religion. And, I, and I've always have felt that that was a powerful sense with a powerful message, which was that particularly in a, a government of law, uh, where the government was intentionally limited, because remember the founders had this terrible um, experience with the autocratic, uh, uh, in a way, totalitarian government of the King of England. So they, they they wanted to limit the powers of their government. So so the law in America would not control everything everybody did every minute. You had to have other sources of uh, good behavior, and and uh, Washington was saying there's none better than religion, and um, uh, and I I believe that, and I always have believed that the the uh, establishment and freedom of religion clauses don't uh, say they don't guarantee freedom from religion; they guarantee freedom of religion, including in the public square. Uh, there's got, there, and that's we, we've been at our best, and uh, honestly, you could look back over history, some of the most challenging moral moments, like the, the you know, the abolitionist movement against uh, uh, segregation was led by, against slavery in that case, was led by uh, religious people. The, the social justice, social welfare programs that helped working people, early part of the 20th century led by religious people, and of course the civil rights movement uh, of, the, of the last century led by religious leaders, not just Dr. Martin Luther King, though he was clearly the primary leader, but a lot of others of different faiths. So I, I think our 
the way we combine religious faith and our democracy is one of the great strengths we have. And if the Constitution is read, our, our popular fashion dictates that people of uh, religion don't have a place in the public square, uh, the country uh, is not going to be what, what our founders intended us to be and what each of us should want it to be. I want to shift gears a little bit on you here, Senator. And uh, sure. I, th- I think one of the tests of uh, of statesmen uh, is l- the lessons learned in defeat. Uh, the the lessons of victory are, are usually pretty easy, uh, but the lessons in in defeat I think are more challenging. And and uh, I don't know of of anyone who uh, has gone through that process of a presidential campaign, uh, particularly as close as you were, having won the popular vote by half a yeah. million votes, uh, and still not there. Describe what did you what did you learn from that what did you take away from that whole experience well i suppose in the most direct sense i, I learned that uh, we've clung to the electoral college for too long <laughs> and i wish we had removed it but it, 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 there's been no moves in that direction for a lot of reasons which we can come back to but um really it, w- it was an extraordinary experience i mean l- let me just say quickly that th- this decision of who you choose as a running mate is a is one of the most Singularly powerful political decisions in our in our politics, which means that the the presidential candidate pretty much has his or her will in choosing who he wants. So I'm always going to be grateful to Vice President Gore for selecting me, and and also for for making history in the sense that I was the first uh, Jewish American to have the privilege to run for one of the nation's top two offices. The campaign itself was thrilling, really, and people were wonderful to me. I probably never worked as hard as I did during those four months. Um, just you're, you're gone, you know, 18, 20 hours a day, and you're visiting two, three, four, five states a day. Thank God, I, by my religious observance, I had the Sabbath, so I'd know I was off sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Uh, and then it stops on election night. And there's this bizarre uncertainty. We, we've won the popular vote by 540-some-odd thousand, but it comes down to the electoral college votes from Florida and recounting and chads and all. It was, it was really a, a strange, surreal month plus uh, after the election. And then when it ended, I mean, an up and down, we win in Florida Supreme Court, and then shockingly to us, the Supreme Court takes the case and decides uh, essentially that it's over. And um, I must tell you that my reaction, uh, and maybe a, a mental health consultant would say either it was the right way or the wrong way. I just, the next morning, I went right back to my Senate office. I mean, it was just the way I dealt with it. I just wanted to say, look, I'm blessed to still be a senator. This was an incredible experience. I, it, was a, it was a profound disappointment in the end. But I'm going to go back to work. And, uh, you know, and that helped me in the first days afterward, although I must say it was um, it was very difficult, and it still comes back to me periodically. What a strange twist at the end! <laughs> um, uh, and uh, oh, gee, I wish that that we could have taken office, and I think we could have done this or that. But you know, here's my eighty then eighty five year old mother says to me the night of the Supreme Court decision. She was one of the few people to call me Joseph. Everybody else calls me <laughs> Joe. Joseph, remember, please. All that happened is you lost an election. You didn't lose your life. You got a lot of life left. You're going to make a lot out of it. So, you know, God bless you. And uh, honestly, a, a mother's wisdom was quite 
important to me at that point. Yeah, and uh, and good lesson for all of us uh, in terms really? of moving forward in a in a major way. As we come down the home stretch, uh, Senator Lieberman, I, I want to ask you uh, about uh, a lot of the new things. Really, you you talked earlier about the the extremes on the left and the right. Uh, yes, and uh, they do seem to be uh, more interested in kind of. Uh, I guess they have a vision of themselves in in power as opposed to a, a vision for the people. Uh, you've been critical of, of those on the left that have been, you know, embracing more of a socialist kind of agenda. Yeah. Um, and obviously those on the, the right uh, have their own problems. Do, do you think it's possible for us to, to get to unity? What kind of leader or what kind of moment is it going to take uh, to to really unite the country that way? Well, thanks for that question. I mean, look, it's going to take the public to be aroused as they were in those 23 races that I talked about that no labels got into where they had a choice really between somebody who was either a center-right Republican and a far-right Republican or a center-left Democrat and a far-left Democrat and choose the one who, who seems uh, uh, free enough and respectful enough of the opposition to be willing to come to the center and negotiate and, uh, and compromise and get something done. In other words, ultimately, uh, it's the will of the people. Uh, and of course, th- this plays itself out every time we have a congressional election, Senate election, but really in our presidential elections, and so we'll see uh, next time uh, uh, how that works. But I, I agree with you, Boyd, that I think there's a majority of the American people out there who may have strong opinions, one party or another, one ideology or another, but honestly, they're loyal to the country first, which is what we all should be, and and they want people in, in Congress in Washington to work together uh, to, to get things done for America. And um, so we, we got the opportunity again as the uh, as the presidential and congressional elections uh, begin to take hold. And I'll go back to Washington again. He warned in the farewell address that he was worried about the increasing power of what he called factions. And he mm-hmm. thought fa- uh, he worried that some people were already way back then more loyal to their faction, which is a way to say then their political party or ideological faction or interest group, than they were loyal to their country. And he said America cannot remain independent and will never be truly strong. Uh, and true to the values of, of the generation that founded the country, if um, if we don't put the country first. So hopefully that, that will happen as we go on. We have a way of coming back. Uh, that's been our history. And this is a different kind of hole we're in now, but I'm I'm confident, really, not just optimistic, that we will come back and, and return to a kind of unity that will make our future better. Two quick final questions for you, Senator. First, um, we often talk on this show. I, I have a uh, a wall worth building. Uh, it's a it's a wall of fame. Uh, I have autographs on baseballs, not just from the great, uh, you know, Willie Mays <laughs> and Mickey Mantles. I actually have autographs on baseballs from people who've made a difference in my life: authors, coaches, teachers, oh, good great. friends. Uh, so, if you were starting your wall of fame, give me uh, one or two people that you would immediately want to make sure you got their autograph on. Uh, on a baseball for you. Interesting. Well, leaving aside the obvious, which is my mom and dad who really got me started, uh, there's no question that um, President Kennedy, though I didn't know him really, uh, he was the catalytic figure for my generation and Mm -hmm. brought me and a lot of others really into public service with that whole ask not what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country and that really that that sort of tied into the religious lessons i had learned growing up from my parents and my rabbis that you know we're we're here um we're here 
and our mission is really to improve the world. We, our lives are a blessing from God, and our our responsibility is to, to improve the world. And probably along the way, there was a, a, a governor, then senator, who I worked for as a kid, a college student as an intern. His name was Abraham Rubikov, senator from mm-hmm. Connecticut. And uh, he was a model for me in many ways, uh, just the kind of person we've been talking about. Uh, he once uh, gave a speech, which and which he called uh, the integrity of compromise. In other words, to compromise in a democracy is not uh, dishonest. It's a way to get something done. It's not to really compromise your principles, but uh, to just uh, not, not expect to get 100% every time yeah. you have a piece of legislation. Because if you demand 100%, you'll probably end up with 0% and everybody everybody suffers. That's Those right. are two. Kennedy, Ribikoff, and of course, mom and dad at the at the top. Wonderful. And I love that concept, the integrity of compromise. We'll, we'll come, yeah, we'll come back too. to that another, another day. Therefore, what? People have been listening for the last 25 minutes. Uh, what do you hope the, the therefore what moment is? What do you hope people think different? What do you hope they do different uh, as a result of uh, listening to this conversation today? Yeah. Well, that's really a challenge. So I'd say simply, not to uh, not to make it a long uh, answer, that I hope they believe with me that America's best days are ahead of us. It's This is still the greatest place in the world to live. We're blessed to be Americans. And now uh, we're squandering um, our current and to some extent our future because we're squabbling politically for reasons that are not as important as the well-being of the country and every, every one of us as citizens. So we, the people, have to demand that our elected officials uh, get with it and, uh, and and work together for the better betterment of our country. Wonderful. Former Senator Joe Lieberman, a true statesman, thanks so much for joining us today. On Thank you, Boyd. I really enjoyed it. Have a great day. All right. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?